Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coaches. This is a stakeholder-centered coaching production where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. My name is Brandon Murgard. I'm the CEO of Stakeholder Center Coaching, and I will be your host for today. Today is a special day because it is the season finale of our opening season, which means we're going to do something a little bit different. For the first episodes, what we did was we brought on some of our best coaches. It has been a wild ride having a, a long kind of open conversation with them about how their careers develop. And in each episode, you probably heard me say, send me an email to podcast at mgscc.net with whatever questions you have. Well, today, instead of having a one-on-one conversation with one coach, I'm actually going to have a conversation with all of you based on some of the questions that have been submitted. What I have in front of me is a list of questions from you, the listeners, that you want to talk about. So for today's episode, we're going to go down that list and have a little conversation with each of you about the questions that you've submitted. A quick disclaimer, I'm going to respond to these from the stakeholder-centered coaching perspective. So let's box in what I'm attempting to do and not attempting to do. What I'm attempting to do is share the stakeholder-centered coaching perspective to some of these challenges that you've sent to me. So what I'll do is I'll share my insight, I'll share from my experience, I'll maybe share some stories, maybe a little bit of humor, but the goal is to say, here is our perspective on this. And sometimes here's simply my perspective. What I am not attempting to do is to set definitions for the industry. I'm not looking to set rules or, or say this is the way that things are. I simply want to say, here's how I would approach this. Here's how we would prescribe to our coaches to respond to this particular challenge. And with that frame, I just want to have a conversation about the questions that you've sent in. And some of them are very specific. Some of them are very general. So without further ado, let's get into it. You may agree, you may disagree, but in any case, let's have a conversation about it. That's the purpose of the show. So if you agree or you disagree, leave a comment, let us know which section resonated with you and your response to it. Good. Without further ado, let's jump into the first question. This first one comes from one of our coaches, Caroline in the US. Caroline asked, I've been using the Stakeholder Center Coaching 360 review process for a single executive for single executive coaching clients with multiple raters with great success for years. Recently, I was asked to conduct 360 reviews for a leader's team of direct reports, which is 15 colleagues, and would like to know how you scale the 360 interview process for larger groups. Now, before I, I finish reading this question, I, I want to just Uh, share the insight that typically when we're doing stakeholder-centered coaching, we're working with about six to 12 stakeholders is generally a good number. You don't want less than that because if someone leaves or if someone gets transferred to a different team or project, gets promoted out, uh, it can affect the coaching. You don't want to have too many stakeholders because then your processes become very bloated. That's a lot of feed forward. It's a lot of parsing suggestions to make the action plan. It's a lot of stakeholders to keep up with. Um, And generally, we find 6 to 12 is a good number. So already, as I see this number 15, I'm thinking, wow, this is going to be a hefty engagement. Good. And I would like to know how you scale the 360 interview process for larger groups. The individual interviewing process is time consuming. Yeah, it is. Albeit very impactful. And I'd like insight about what tools to use to scale the process for multiple individuals at once. All right. Well, this is a 
a strong opening question. Um, for, for those of you who don't know me yet, I got my start in this organization with 360 assessments, um, specifically with the Global Leadership 360 assessment or GLA 360. So I'm always up for a conversation on 360 feedback. Caroline, to start, I would say uh, we know 360s are a great way to initiate a coaching engagement. Um, because it can give you a benchmark of how the leader's effectiveness in specific areas is currently being perceived. Uh, two standard methods of 360 feedback that we use in stakeholder center coaching um, are behavioral interviews and structured 360s. For those of you who are not familiar with the terms, the behavioral interview is when you have a one-on-one -on -one semi-structured interview with respondents that asks about the leader's strengths, their potential areas for development, uh, perhaps the areas that bring out the best and the worst in the leader. Uh, and, you know, we generally ask what advice the respondent would have for the leader if they were the leader's uh, boss, mentor, or coach. The structured 360 is a more objective instrument that's generally uh, including competencies, specific behaviors, possibly some verbatim feedback that comes at the end of the survey. Uh, and they're typically built on rigorously studied leadership frameworks. They're thoroughly validated um, and then digitally distributed as surveys with some kind of report that's auto-generated. So right away, you can probably see the richness of the interviews as well as the scalability of the structured 360. But before moving forward, let's actually talk about the function of feedback or the function of these tools and the precise purpose that they serve, because this gives context for how you scale. Uh, at face value, the function of the tools is feedback. But feedback for the sake of feedback doesn't go so far in leadership development. Actually, the opposite is true. Too much feedback, especially without a plan to make some meaningful change in that area, can leave the recipient feeling deflated at best or depressed, or even angry at worst. So what purpose then does feedback serve? In stakeholder-centered coaching, and that's where my expertise is, so I don't want to speak on other coaching methodologies, but in stakeholder-centered coaching, feedback serves one singular focus, and that is to select the most appropriate growth area. It's selecting an appropriate growth area. That's it. We're not here to understand all the transgressions of the leader or to air out their dirty laundry, to smoke out pinch points in a relationship. We're not here to make anyone feel bad. We simply want to collect feedback so that the growth area we select is important to the leader, it's important to the stakeholders, and it's important to the organization. I think of this kind of as the, the triple bottom line for coaches. And that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, the implication here is that there is a definitive line of diminishing returns on the time the coach spends collecting the feedback. And this particular question is attempting to root out right where that line is so that you can get rich quality feedback efficiently for the coach and effectively for the leader. So that's the, the lens that we're looking at these tools for as we think about scaling. So this particular question from Caroline is, is focused on the behavioral interviews, which tend to take, you know, 20 minutes or so per interview, five to 10 minutes before and after for 
logistics like prepping for the next interview, uh, reviewing the notes that you just took, or even moving office to office. When you factor in different schedules and different time zones, variable reliability for individuals showing up on time or showing up at all, uh, then 15 respondents in question, giving uh, the 15, then the 15 respondents in question, giving them 20 to 30 minute interviews can easily add up to 20 or more hours of work when you factor in administration, scheduling, the rescheduling that's going to take place with some of them, writing the report. Uh, so you can very quickly soak a, a lot of billable hours just getting to the starting line where you have some feedback. So here's where we start answering the question directly. Uh, and I would say, let's explore some four considerations. Uh, let's call them approaches. Some four approaches that you can, you can think about for scaling operations to reduce your time investment while still collecting the feedback that you need to select the um, appropriate growth area. The first approach I recommend would be sort of a hybrid approach. Um, this would be collecting feedback through both a structured 360 tool first and behavioral interviews second. Of course, you can do this any which direction you like. That's my suggestion is structured and then the semi-structured behavioral interviews are quantitative and then qualitative. So that structured quantitative 360 would be deployed to all respondents to collect the objective feedback. Um, and I always recommend having some verbatim questions at the end. Um, in the GLA 360, those questions are, what are the leader's strengths? What areas could they, could they stand to benefit from developing? Um, and then any additional comments. So three simple questions with verbatim, uh, verbatim responses. Using the data from the structured 360, you can start to identify gaps in the feedback, or you can start to identify particular, uh, let's say particular respondents who you may benefit from having a further conversation with. So in this way, the structured 360 is for everyone. The behavioral interviews are for a limited number of respondents to, let's say, color in the lines of the objective feedback. So in your case, you have 15 respondents. You may choose to do the 360 with everyone and then choose to interview uh, the manager, a few direct reports, and maybe a peer or two. But that right there already cuts your number by half, maybe more. By using the digitally distributed survey to do the heavy lifting, you can kind of collect 80% of the relevant feedback. And then you can do the final 20% of the feedback um, or the heavy lifting through the behavioral interviews. And that will give you quality feedback without investing a great deal of time interviewing each and every respondent. Now, if you're hearing this at home, you're probably thinking, well, hold on a minute, Brandon. Isn't everyone's input valuable? Well, yes. Yes, it is. In fact, I, I agree with you. Um, and if you are a seasoned veteran of conducting behavioral interviews, then you'll know that generally the majority of what you hear is going to be repeated across respondents. And the most critical insights tend to come from a critical few respondents. So the structured 360 uh, will help you to identify the critical few and spend more time with them while still collecting the uh, information that would be repeated across respondents. Now, 
your mileage may vary. I'm certainly not saying that you will get 100% of the information 100% of the time with this method, but I will strongly argue that all of the requisite information to effectively and efficiently help a leader to be recognized and acknowledged as more effective by their stakeholders will come from this method. So again, not saying you're going to collect everything, but I am saying that for the the trade-off of time and input, A, you're going to get everything necessary to be an effective coach. B, you and the leader and the stakeholders are going to save an inordinate amount of time. So I'm happy to be challenged uh, by you in this. I'm happy to hear alternate um, perspectives. Share that in the comment, or of course, you can always email me, podcast at mgscc.net. Okay, so we've we've got the first approach, which is the hybrid uh, a hybrid approach. Um, the next one I would recommend I would sort of term as a mass production approach. So here you will simply be um, a behavioral interview factory for a day or maybe two. Um, this method is very useful if you either aren't certified in a structured three hundred and sixty tool. Um, or if you're just insistent on behavioral interviews and you simply want the most efficient way to collect them. So in this approach, you would set aside one, maybe two days for behavioral interviews. Um, Generally, I will plan to be on site for teams that are largely at one location, um, and I'll park in a conference room. I'll bring my, my lunch, my coffee, my water, whatever, and I'll just plan to camp there for a day. Um, In advance, I'll have my assistant schedule with each respondent to conduct back-to-back interviews. So uh, I will anticipate 15 to 20 minutes of interview, five minutes at the front, five minutes at the back, which means I can have up to 10 minutes between respondents. Um, And then in an eight-hour day, I can, in theory, process about 16 interviews. So that would work for your situation, Carolyn, presumably. Um, But personally, I make it a nine-hour day and I take a few, maybe three or four 15-minute breaks. So in this way, I can get a lot of them done in one big run. Uh, But again, your mileage may vary. And it really is going to depend on your ability to plan and be administratively uh, efficient. And for that, I would always recommend having an assistant. Um, But before you go and do this, I do want to say that there is there is a distinct concern that you'll want to address with this approach, and that is listening fatigue and memory retention. So I suggest if you do this, to consider recording the conversations so that you have notes for later review or having a second person, could be your assistant, another coach, it could be a research assistant, um, to support the note taking. So if you are in that same room Asking the same questions about the same leader all day, you're going to struggle to capture and retain it all. Have a second set of ears with you to support good notes capture. Good. So we have hybrid approach. We have this mass production approach. um, And the next next approach would be just purely digital. Um, You know, I'll share my, I'll share a personal story on this one because I'm a big advocate of structured 360s over behavioral interviews, meaning generally I will use just 360s and skip the behavioral interviews. Why? Uh, it's because it's because of our why, actually. We believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader, um, and feedback is really the first step to, it's the first step on that pathway. But when feedback is expensive, then becoming a stakeholder-centered leader becomes a bit less accessible. 
So as a result, I generally tend to push harder towards accessibility. Um, and that just dovetails nicely with the scalability of structured 360s. However, I do want to give a big fat shout out to my first guest of the season, Bill Zeeb, who was my coach back in 2018, 2019, and really challenged this, uh, challenged this assumption and really moved me from the position I was in before. Um, my structured 360 results came back. It was the global leadership assessment. It was all I needed to move forward, pick an important goal and, and go with it. Now, Bill, in his infinite wisdom and prowess as a coach, <laughs> practically twisted my arm uh, to conduct the behavioral interviews. And I was, I was uh, reluctant um, because I, I just wanted to focus on efficiency and I knew I had a good communication pipeline with my stakeholders already. So Bill really pushed for this. And you know, after he brought me my report, um, I became a very a much more firm believer in the power of the behavioral interviews. Really, it's just it was it was a a transformative experience to hear what people had said um, that wasn't necessarily included in a three hundred and sixty, and maybe wasn't fully communicated in the verbatim comments. So while I'm still an enormous proponent of using structured three hundred and sixties wherever possible. Um, I do now believe that if you are working with a top tier coach, um, if you have the funds, if you have the time, do a behavioral interview, um, you know, just take the time to get it done. From an insights perspective, you will not regret having done it, but I can't promise you that you won't regret what you find out about yourself. So good luck with that. Uh, it's definitely my recommendation and, um, do with that what you will. So this purely digital approach really relies on accepting that you will get what you need from the structured 360 um, and then just deploy it to all those respondents. In general, in general, this is the most cost effective, uh, excuse me, cost efficient. Um, and in fact, to make it even more cost efficient, you can use our inventory from the GLA 360 to create your own survey for free online to distribute. You can use whatever platform offers some free free trial, whatever. You can plug our inventory in uh, and then run it for free because it's already out there. That's how committed we are to this. So again, you can email podcast at mgscc.net and we'll send you the inventory and the scaling so that you can conduct this absolutely for free on your own. And while you will definitely miss out on the deep insights from using the official tool like normative scaling for benchmarking and a few other things, you will get the bulk of the value, which is the feedback that serves its purpose to select a high value growth area. Great. So we've got one more approach. And the final approach, um, I would kind of, I think of this as an asynchronous qualitative approach. So this approach is a strong contender for time efficiency, but anytime you have to parse through qualitative data or do your thematic analysis, you are likely to sink a lot of time into that. So on average, on average, yeah, I'm comfortable saying on average, um, this is very time efficient, um, but the outliers you know, when you get too much information from particular stakeholders or have too many stakeholders, I should say a lot of stakeholders, um, then this would be 
only the second most efficient. So with this approach, you take the semi-structured interview questions that you had prepared for the complete interview, um, and you just make it a structured interview. Fairly simple. Um, as a standard rule for this approach, it would be distributed asynchronously, and that's largely through email. So you can send an email to respondents, ask them to respond as honestly and comprehensively as possible, uh, provide the questions you want them to answer, and see what they write back. Um, again, these questions for us tend to be, what are the leader's strengths? What are the areas that they could stand to develop in? Which environments bring out the best? Which environments bring out the worst? And if you were this leader's boss, mentor, or coach, what advice would you have for them? So we take these questions, drop it in an email, send it out, get the responses, and do your analysis there. And what winds up happening is, although you'll have uh, a similar amount of information to parse through and analyze, as you would with the behavioral interviews, you skip a lot of the administration, the scheduling, the commuting, the rescheduling with some people. Um, and so this can be very time efficient, still processing qualitative information. Good. Um, from a logistics perspective, uh, I generally would send these emails out on a Monday, send a follow-up on a Wednesday, and then personally follow up with individuals on Thursday, close the collection by Friday, do my analysis over the weekend, and within an eight-day, Monday to Monday, let's say seven to eight days uh, around Monday to Monday, um, I've collected all the feedback and produced the report for the leader. Good. So one other one other. Um, way to modify this that I'd be remiss not to mention, and this is a little bit more of an advanced technique for the asynchronous collection, would be to train a, an assistant to do the collection. That would be training them to ask the questions, get clarification on anything that, that you might need clarification on, take good notes, and then relay all of that information to you. While we don't have any literature currently about how to effectively train your assistant to conduct these interviews, take good notes and pass it off to you. Um, if it is a topic of interest, leave a comment or send an email, um, and then we can either do a free training or a, a free video on the topic. So there it is, Caroline. You have four, here's four new approaches you can take. You can take a hybrid approach where you'll be leveraging the best of both worlds of the structured 360 and the qualitative interviews. Um, you can just power through a day of interviews with some well-planned logistics. Uh, you could go fully digital, um, or you can collect qualitative input asynchronously. We believe that any of these approaches is going to give you the data necessary to serve the purpose of feedback, which is to select uh, the best area for focus in the coaching. So, Carolyn, I'd love to know which one you pick and how it goes. Um, and for those of you listening, if you have other suggestions or have tried a method like this, have any specific tips, again, leave a comment, let us know. Ooh, okay, boy, that was, a, that was a good one, wasn't it? I really liked that first question. I'm gonna like all of these questions. I just so enjoy uh, working with our coaches. Okay. Next question. Next question we have comes from one of our coaches, David, in the United Kingdom. Uh, actually, it looks like the next few are coming from David. So thank you, David, for your, your questions. He, he's asked, what are the most challenging or difficult behaviors for leaders to change? 
I would say that while it is reasonable to assume that certain behaviors are more difficult for certain leaders than others, to my knowledge, we don't have any indication that any specific behaviors are on average more difficult than other behaviors. We do, however, know a few things about the behaviors that leaders choose. One lesson we have that comes from the book Triggers is that certain triggers in your environment can amplify the challenge of changing certain patterns of behavior. Uh, in brief, certain environmental triggers can lead to the feelings or the thinking patterns that lead to certain behaviors. And I think a good example of this is, is people who try to stop smoking, right? One of the first things that they're told to do is don't hang out with other smokers in places where they're smoking or in places right after they've smoked because the smells, the, 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 the sights, all of that um, is going to trigger certain thinking and feeling patterns that are going to drive uh, you know, urges towards a particular behavior. So knowing what these are and then optimizing your environment for a leader can be um, a very strong contribution to make as a coach. Uh, you know, one way to uncover this is to ask during those behavioral interviews, what environments bring out the best in the leader? What environments bring out the worst in this leader? And with this knowledge, you can identify triggers or, or, or at least make progress towards identifying triggers and environments uh, that you can then modify or remove to enhance the leader's ability to succeed at their leadership growth areas. The first lesson comes from triggers. And I think the next lesson that we can, that we can learn comes from the behaviors that are most selected by leaders. So if you're a stakeholder-centered coach, inside of your coach portal, um, you have a downloadable list of the top 20 leadership goals selected by leaders we've worked with. And this gives you rich insights in terms of what people are actually focusing on. And, you know, David, it's not going to tell you which is more difficult than the other, but what it does tell us is that these are the, the, these are largely the behaviors that are most challenging for leaders to self overcome, right? Because they have hired a coach to help them work on this. Okay. So we have triggers. We have the most selected growth areas. And I think lastly, um, we know that regardless of the behavior a leader focuses on, the key ingredient in being recognized and acknowledged as a more effective leader is follow-up. Without following up with stakeholders, the likelihood of success is a coin toss. It's a statistical coin toss. Um, our largest study to date with more than a quarter million respondents show that 95% of leaders who are seen as following up frequently or consistently with their stakeholders uh, about what they're working on, asking for suggestions, sharing their action plan, even if they don't work with a coach at all, 95% of the leaders that are seen as consistently or frequently following up are also recognized and acknowledged as more effective leaders by the key people around them within 12 months. Not only do these numbers not change significantly across cultures, geographies, or even industries, but these numbers go much closer to 100% when you are working with a coach. Now, that 100% number is, is a bit dubious because there's a, a strong amount of implicit bias um, in those studies, but the 95% 
the 95% conclusion did not come from an internal study. It came from working with leaders um, outside who were not working with a coach. So this had a great deal of research independence. So, um, you know, the question is, which behaviors are more challenging for leaders than others? And I think the conclusion is that we don't have any indication that anything is more challenging naturally. Um, but what we do know is that certain environments can make certain behaviors more difficult for certain people. That's very specific. Um, we know the behaviors that are most challenging for leaders that they hire a coach for. Um, and we also know that if you are going to change, follow-up is the the greatest predictor degree, consistency of follow-up is the greatest predictor of being recognized and acknowledged as a more effective leader by your key stakeholders. So regardless of what the behavior is, we know how it can be improved. Ultimately, what we know is perception drives performance and that's the key for follow-up. Good, so um, as we move on to the next question, which again also comes from David, um, I wanna say that we have received a, a, a wonderful a wonderful response with questions. Um, all of them won't be included in this interview. I'm told that I only have 90 minutes. Uh, and so we'll get through as many as we can here, and then we'll address many of the other ones in individual videos. Okay, so with that, let's come to our next question. Uh, how does the stakeholder-centered coaching method help leaders more than any other methodology? Now, rather than aiming to compare the stakeholder-centered coaching process with other available methodologies, um, I want to start by saying that I think there's far more that unites us as coaches than divides us. There's far more that makes us the same than makes us different. And that's our strength, I believe. Um, most coaching methods are aimed at the same outcome, right? We're all here for the same thing. We want to make leaders more effective. We want to provide uh, enhanced leadership to the people that follow the leaders. Um, however, each, each methodology is going to have its own unique propositions to attract the right leaders with the right needs. Um, and so that's what I want to focus on is what are, the, what are the unique factors that we bring or the unique factors of our process uh, that aren't better or superior, they're just different than others that help us attract the right leaders with the right needs. Um, and I, I will start with the fact that a unique aspect of stakeholder-centered coaching is its outside-in focus. It's the outside-in focus. And the research is very clear on this. You do not think yourself into new ways of behaving. You behave yourself into new ways of thinking. You do, we'll say that again, because I think this is a really important takeaway for everyone. You do not think your way into new behaviors. You behave your way into new thinking. Because of stakeholder-centered coaching's uniquely strong focus on the behaviors people need to see, it is undoubtedly the shortest pathway between the leader of today and the leader of tomorrow. Our process is, is, is very similar to consumer research. It's very similar to agile project management. We're working on project you as the leader. Ask people which leadership features they need to see before acknowledging you as a more improved leader. They will give you a list and then you get to pick. You get to pick, you're in control. Then you tell them, here's the feature or behavior in this metaphor. Here's the feature that I'm willing to focus on what suggestions do you have for me on how to demonstrate improvement in this area? 
They're going to give you suggestions. And again, you get to pick which specific actions you're going to take. You tell them, here's what I'm going to do. You do it. You ask them how you did. Then you repeat that cycle throughout your career. It is a continuous improvement process that can last an entire lifetime. So this process takes you from who you are today to who you want to be in the fewest steps possible. That guarantees maximum results for minimum input. That, I mean, that's a pretty attractive value proposition to, to very important business people. What we find is that leaders who improve in one area tend to also improve in several other areas practically by accident. So this outside-in approach is uh, uniquely efficient um, and can be done entirely on the job. It's not done in closed doors, not done behind closed doors. It's not done off-site. Off it's real-time on the job asking the most important people how to improve and what they need to see. So that's one aspect. Um, another, another unique aspect, I would say, is the rigid focus on stakeholders with a very, very... Uh, relentless focus on stakeholders. Um, and in fact, our measure of success is whether the stakeholders recognize you as more effective. Um, you know, we are very unique in assessing that change from the eyes of the stakeholders. Why do we do this? Well, again, the research is very clear. The greatest indicator of an effective leader is that people are willing to be led by you. And in fact, if no one's willing to be led by you, you're probably not very effective as a leader. I think that's almost self-explanatory. Um, their perception of you, their being your stakeholders, their perception of you is what drives that willingness. And the strongest predictor uh, of affecting that willingness is, as we said, the consistency of your follow-up in which behaviors you're working on and how to improve in them. Good. And I'll take this moment to, to just call out the fact that there's only two non-negotiables in stakeholder-centered coaching. Everything is variable except two things. Number one is that you will actively involve stakeholders in your leadership development. And number two is that you're going to measure results. That's it. Everything else is negotiable. But this brings me to what I would say is a third point of uniqueness, um, and that is measuring results. At Stakeholder Center Coaching, we are known for our world-class measurement system. And it's not complicated. In fact, I'll tell you exactly what it is and you can use it today. We ask the key people around the leader what changes they've seen in the leader's effectiveness. We do this on a minus three to plus three scale. And then we add up all the responses and we divide by the number of responses. Then we add up all the scores and divide by the number of responses for one average score that lands somewhere between minus three and plus three. That simple minus three to plus three scale has completely changed the coaching industry for the better. And of course, we have Marshall Goldsmith to thank for that. Now, we ask a few more questions and whatnot, but there's nothing to stop you from using this very simple instrument to assess change today. And again, for free, I've just told you exactly what to ask and how to measure it. We also provide a more uh, comprehensive, but still very simple tool to our certified coaches and clients called the mini survey. Measuring results is a must for stakeholder-centered coaching. It's a must for those who wanna become a stakeholder-centered leader. 
So there it is. We focus on changing outside in behaviors before anything else. We focus on stakeholders um, and we measure results. It's not right or wrong, not better or worse, but it is a more effective and more efficient tool for leaders who want to be recognized and acknowledged as key stakeholders. Next question. What are the likely behavior changes expected in the future, the next 12 to 24 months? I think this question is asking about the sustainability of change. Um, specifically, as I interpret it, it seems to be asking about um, you know, how, sticky, uh, how sticky the behavioral changes made through the coaching are. Um, and can we expect them to still be around or to naturally revert back to the, the old behavioral patterns? 12 to 24 months after the coaching is finished. So that's how I interpret this question. Um, and I'd say that there's two answers to this. The first is that we don't have comprehensive, robust research on the year-on-year -year sustainability of behavioral change. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we are without practical data, uh, but I do want to be clear about the limitations of our knowledge on the topic. Now, the second answer uh, comes from that practical data. And this is from thousands and thousands of engagements, from observational data, from tens of thousands of leaders, um, and certain indicators we can extrapolate um, that we can, we can look out and make a reasonable and well-informed inference from. So uh, let's, start, let's start with the latter. There are no indications in our research, academic or applied, that suggests stakeholder-centered coaching loses potency over time. Um, in fact, quite, quite the opposite is true. Both our academic and applied research have, uh, have very strong indicators that um, coaching improves over time. Okay, now this is limited in scope between 12 and 18 months, uh, but the social science research and even machine learning research shows that creating these, these feedback and feed-forward loops can drive continuous improvement without any definitive uh, wall where your returns become diminishing. Uh, we also see this in, in other fields as well. So again, there's limitations to these conclusions, but there's no reason to expect a loss of, of effectiveness over time. However, there is one glaring piece of evidence that shows almost the, the precise moment that behaviors and the change made through coaching where it becomes unsustainable. And that is the moment that leaders stop applying the stakeholder-centered habits that they've developed with their coaches. You know, for whatever reason, they're busy or they've changed projects, whatever, leaders who stop involving stakeholders, stop following up, stop continuously developing, asking for suggestions, sharing their action plan, um, they become they start to be seen as decreasingly effective leaders. That doesn't mean less effective than when they started, but less effective from whenever their latest uh, measurement point was. And if you're working with one of our coaches, it was probably at 12 months. Yet this, again, has more to do with the change in habits than with anything else. So I think the question then is, what can, what can you do about it as a coach? <clears throat> um, I have recently become quite a proponent and encouraged many of our coaches to do the same, uh, that when you conclude a coaching engagement, schedule a six or even 12-month follow-up mini-survey 
after you've stopped working with the leader. Why? It's because it gives the leader an incentive to keep going after you're gone, or at minimum provides accountability to see whether or not they continue. Um, I include this in my commercial agreement, or I simply give it for free. Um, but one of three things is going to happen. Either the leader receives scores that are neutral, or scores that suggest backsliding, or scores that suggest improvement. So you have neutral, backsliding, uh, and improvement. And in the former two situations, you have a very strong basis for continuing to employ your services. Maybe it's a full, full coaching engagement um, or you know, more ideally for the leader would be just some monthly accountability calls. Uh, in fact, I have seen some of our coaches uh, make these group calls. So they have a historic group of the clients that they've worked with in the past. And when they graduate from their coaching, they'll say, yeah, come and join my group. Once a month, we get together for an hour and hold everyone accountable. So this is another, another thing that you can do but you will only smoke that problem out with a follow-up mini survey. In the case where a leader has continued to improve in your absence, well, that's fantastic. That's exactly what you wanted to have happen. Uh, you now have a very compelling case study to write for yourself uh, about the long-term impact of your coaching. Uh, and by the way, if you go this route, drop me an email because I'd love to be a part of writing or distributing that case study, even just calling it out on this podcast, because we do need more knowledge on um, the sustainability of this behavioral change. Um, but aside from the case study, additionally, given your six to 12 months of rapport with the leader, um, you have a very strong basis for discussing cascading your services outward or downward. Outward might be uh, working in a peer team or perhaps another functional unit or project team. Uh, or downward would be involving their direct reports through uh, team stakeholder center coaching. So in a perfect world, you know, we conclude an engagement and the leader is disciplined enough to just keep continuing the habits they've established. But as a coach, you do not have to be uh, a sideline observer. You don't have to be a bystander in this. You can actually um, not leave this to chance. You can play an active role uh, in sustainability by having that conversation. Hey, before we finish our engagement, let's decide how we're going to assess your ongoing success after I'm gone. A six-month and a 12-month mini-survey, and that will ensure your progress is sustained or that we can make course corrections fast enough to avoid backsliding entirely. Next question, why do some leaders, why do some leaders resist change? Well, I, I have some news for you. Uh, it is not just leaders that resist change, we all do. Why? It's because change is hard and hard things are easy to resist. I'm sure you, I'm sure at least the majority of you have heard the quote that there's, there's no growth in the comfort zone and there's no comfort in the growth zone. Therefore, your success at continuous improvement as a leader will become a function of both your ability and your willingness to be uncomfortable. And that's a takeaway from this. Uh, your, and I encourage you, if you're a coach, share this with your leaders. This is a great, um, a great first session conversation to have as you explain what they will go through in coaching. Their success at continuous improvement as a leader 
is a function of their ability and their willingness to be uncomfortable. So at any point in time, any point in your coaching, you can assess your comfort levels. You can help the leader assess their comfort levels. And if anyone is feeling nice and cozy and warm and situated, it's probably time to raise the stakes and set bigger goals. So this, this whole animal really comes into focus when you see how uh, at face value, how uncomfortable stakeholder center coaching appears. What do you mean I have to tell other people what I'm working on? And why do I have to ask them for suggestions? And why do I have to let them determine whether I've improved or not? That's uncomfortable. When you help a leader see that their effectiveness as a leader is, uh, is a simple reflection of how others perceive them as a leader, it becomes clear how important it is to involve them, albeit it will be a bit uncomfortable. So if your success then is a function of your ability and willingness to be uncomfortable, what can you do about it? And more importantly, what can we as coaches uh, or how can we as coaches coach others to improve their resilience to overcome that resistance? My first suggestion is to embrace discomfort. Embrace discomfort. Now, you might be thinking, well, Brandon, I think I might already be doing that. Great. Let's do a quick litmus test to find out. Do you do cold showers every day? Do you put on your running shoes first thing in the morning and just hit the road, rain or shine? Do you meditate regularly? Do you follow a strict diet for non-medical, non-aesthetic reasons, but simply to demonstrate control over what goes into your body? This is not a comprehensive list, but if you answered yes to any of these, you very well may be someone who actively embraces the discomfort. So what does, what does this actually mean and how do you benefit from it? Uh, embracing discomfort means making an active and intentional choice that leads to an unnecessarily uncomfortable conclusion. So I'll give you an example. Um, I lived in Asia for about a decade, a little more than a decade. I lived in Asia for a decade in one of the most population dense cities in the world, Seoul, South Korea, where I ran our APAC and EMEA regions for certifications. Now, coming back from the ruins of the 1950s on the backside of the Korean War, uh, the country has made a, a truly remarkable comeback uh, to become one of the world's largest economies. But you can imagine that through that very, very rapid and largely unexpected development, that roads and, and uh, traffic conditions were not well thought through. They were built a bit more reactively than, than proactively. So traffic is beyond a nightmare. There's the scene of the story. Now, my, my lovely wife, in, in her gentle kindness, gave me feed forward one day that I had started to become uh, a bit impatient. And, okay, so her words, her words were a little bit more than a bit impatient, but uh, you, you get the picture. Okay, so she said I'm impatient. So the first thing I did was, again, wisdom out of triggers, wisdom from the book triggers. I started to look for the environments where my impatience flared up. And boy, oh boy, traffic was a pretty big contributor. 
My downtown office was a little more than a kilometer from home, but it took more than an hour to drive each day. Now, there, there were a few pinch points um, in the road where, where my, I noticed that my blood would practically start to boil uh, from the other drivers. So I started making it a goal each morning and on the way home um, to find ways to sell, set myself back. Um, I wanted to find ways to increase my drive time. So I would actively look for people who had that, that driving style. That's look, you look at them and you say, they're going to cut me off and I know it. I would look for that and I would, I would tap the brakes and give them a chance to come over. I would encourage them to cut me off. Um, where I had the option at a traffic light, I would take the longer, I would stand in the, uh, drive in the longer line knowing that it's going to increase my time very marginally, but I would do whatever I could to slow myself down and combat my growing impatience. Okay. Ooh, it's tough to even think about. Now, the first few weeks, as, as you can imagine, were quite a battle. Uh, if you looked at any of my um, in-cab dash cam footage, you would see what looks like a lunatic talking to himself, kind of like David Goggins does on his runs. Uh, but the, the neck and the words were not kind. They were not kind. They were very frustrating towards myself. Um, but the next few, few weeks, the words became kinder. You know, I started saying, good job, Brandon, letting that person over. Um, I would start to rewrite a narrative from, oh, this jerk cut me off to, um, oh, I'm going to let this person over because maybe they have an important meeting that they didn't plan well for. Um, and so by doing this, I embraced the discomfort of my impatience by actually leaning into it and pushing in the opposite direction. So what does this do for you? Well, what it does is it gives you um, affirmation that you are able to exert your willpower over your behavior and even over your emotion, over your responses in any situation. So by taking small, deliberate steps to embrace discomfort, you build sort of like um, calluses on your hands, right? You just get stronger and more resilient um, when in this low stake environment so that when the stakes are high, you're able to be in control. So if you are a leader and you wanted to embrace discomfort, the first thing to do is to identify the area um, where you're uncomfortable that needs to be addressed. Perhaps you are short-fused when talking with direct reports. Okay, next, identify any specific triggers that you can, ah, such as Elliot. Oh, Elliot, he always catches you just, just on your way out to lunch and distracts you with his long personal stories. You know, one way to embrace this discomfort might be to actually go out of your way to schedule a once a week coffee break with Elliot and actually listen to their stories with curiosity. Uh, maybe it's to intentionally ask Elliot about their weekend before, before it was offered unsolicited to you. Um, in any case, find an area to address, identify triggers that are going to flare that discomfort, and then lean into it. This builds resiliency while still putting you in the driver's seat of your development. Now, this is just one way. Um, uh, you know, another approach that you may take uh, would be to not make it about you. Um, this is especially effective if you're like me or indeed like many coaches 
who are natural servants and prefer to serve than to be served. So with this, you're going to employ some humility by making growth uh, about others. Your, your input to this growth journey is explicitly to serve others. Um, you know, these people are called your stakeholders and like it or not, they play just as crucial of a role in your leadership effectiveness as you do. Wrap your head around that. Your stakeholders play almost as crucial a role as you do in your leadership development because they ultimately decide whether or not you have improved. So keep a list of those stakeholders handy. This is one suggestion. Keep that handy throughout your day um, and look to them as your North Star. If you're a coach and you're coaching a leader who needs to make leadership development about others, uh, consider doing a business case, which we cover in phase one of the coaching. Uh, you can always go back and look at the training videos to see how we do that uh, explicitly. Personally, I do a comprehensive business case in phase one of coaching always. It's a, it's a key activity for me. And we'll ask questions like, when you get better at this, at this growth area, what benefits come from it? And then we make a very comprehensive list and we try to identify benefits that you as the leader get, benefits your stakeholders get, or benefits that the whole organization will get. Um, and we make this as comprehensive as possible, which is generally 20 to 30 benefits on a sheet of paper. Uh, each day, I will encourage the leader to just pick one benefit. Just pick one benefit. I might send... Um, I might send their assistant a list of 20 to th a word document with 20 to 30 pages and have them just put a different page on their desk each day with one benefit per page, one sheet on their desk each day, and then meditate on that throughout the day. Right? You don't need to sit down and close your eyes and sing Kumbaya, but look at it when you sit down, look at it when you get up, look at it before you go into your meetings, carry it around with you. And keep at the forefront of your mind the fact that you are doing this for the sake of others and that others are watching you. Others are getting benefits from this. So again, this is very helpful if you are someone who prefers serving others more than serving yourself or getting served yourself. Uh, and you know, in doing, so, in doing this uh, approach, your North Star is focused on serving with love and empathy. This is going to drive stakeholder-centeredness and... You know, for some people, it's going to give the, the necessary motivation to make meaningful change and sustain it for the long term. Good. I think the last thing, and, you know, this is almost, almost a canned response for coaches, is to ask for help. Um, you know, if, if, if you need help, that's exactly what your coach is here for, to support you, to provide accountability to you. Uh, to shorten the overall learning curve required to grow yourself. Your stakeholders are there as well, right? We call them stakeholders because by definition, by definition, they hold a stake in your success. So lean on to them when you need help. Uh, but I would say overall, the reality is that change is hard and easy things are hard to resist. So don't go at it alone, get help. Don't focus solely on your discomfort, but try putting your focus on the ways in which you are serving others through your efforts, um, or simply embrace the discomfort to build the calluses necessary to improve your resilience to discomfort uh, 
daily in small, low stakes environments so that when the high stakes environments come up and it really matters, you're able to exert the discipline and willpower that you need. The next question is how to measure the impact and ROI of leadership programs. And this question comes from our coach Lubna in Morocco. This is a good question. And it's one that Marshall and friends have attempted to answer in leadership as a contact sport. Uh, and it was even summarized in a piece called follow-up learning plus follow-up equals results. It's written like a math equation, learning plus sign follow-up equals sign uh, results. If you want a copy, you can search it on Google. You can just drop me an email and we'll get it to you. Podcast at mgscc.net. So the question they began with was whether, whether or not leadership programs have a lasting impact. And that context is that companies at this time are spending billions on, on leadership programs. Uh, and they asked, they asked a particular uh, buyer of these programs, do these actually work? Do you know what impact comes from this? And they said, you know what, Marshall, we, we don't. And he's, in typical Marshall fashion, he said, well, we're going to find out. Let's pull out. Let's do some math. Let's find the answers to this. So um, they began by teaching, oh, around 11,000 leaders or so how to improve their leadership effectiveness um, in, a, in a leadership program. After, after 12 months, we surveyed those leaders' stakeholders to ask what changes they had seen in the leader's behavior over the past year on that minus three to plus three scale. This is about behavioral effectiveness. Minus three would be um, much less effective. Zero is no change. Plus three is much more effective. Good. And we also asked um, to what degree or with, which con with what consistency did the leader follow up with them on their goal and solicit uh, input for improvement. So with the results in hand, we grouped the results according to the degree of follow-up and put the minus three to plus three scale of perceived change in leadership behavior on one axis and the number of leaders who received each score on the other axis. Again, all of this data is visualized in the leadership as a contact sport uh, report, which you can get online or drop an email and we'll get it to you. Um, but something very, very interesting happened. The first conclusion that leapt off the page is that leaders who are seen as consistently following up with their stakeholders were overwhelmingly perceived as more effective leaders. In fact, 95% of those who consistently followed up received positive scores on average. That's enormous. If you are an HR buyer of leadership programs, you cannot get a better ROI than that. One in 20, only one in 20 People that you put into a leadership program, those who are consistently following up, only one in 20 isn't going to be recognized as more effective. And bear in mind, these people weren't, uh, the inclusion criteria was not working with a coach. That wasn't a piece of inclusion criteria. This was self-implementation. Again, those numbers go up considerably when you add in a coach to the equation. So that's one, one conclusion. Those who follow up are seen as more effective. The second conclusion is that the likelihood of being seen as more effective was strongly correlated to the degree of follow-up. 
when you put all the data together and you look at from, from not following up all the way up to following up consistently, and you look at the, the scores, there is a very strong correlation between consistent follow-up, uh, between degree of follow-up and perceived changes in leadership development. That means if you're not following up, you are not seen as more effective. And if you are following up, you are very likely to be seen as more effective. The last conclusion that was both predictable yet still a bit shocking, the strength uh, of the data, was that leaders who were seen as inconsistent or infrequent in their follow-up had no better than a coin toss chance at being seen as more effective, regardless of what they did, regardless of what books they read, regardless of what programs they attended, regardless of what happened day to day, those who were seen as inconsistently following up or infrequently following up were, were, uh, had a coin toss chance at being seen as more effective. Wow, that is a big conclusion. So again, if you are uh, an HR or a sponsor or buyer of coaching, you know that it's an expensive proposition. Why would you want to leave the ROI of that investment to chance when by using stakeholder-centered coaching, you have a statistically significant chance to get overwhelmingly high ROI? So how do we use this learning to effectively measure leadership development programs? Well, um, for programs that intend to affect behavior, a good way to measure this is to ask employees who stand to benefit from that leader's improvement from the program if they have actually seen a meaningful change in their behavior. So rather than relying on simple measures of uh, did you enjoy the program and what were your key what were your key takeaways and do you feel like a better leader as a result of the program? Try following up in three or six or even 12 months to see what change has actually taken place. Again, you can use the, the theory from our mini survey tool. You can use our tool, but you don't have to. You can take the theory and create this for free yourself. What changes have you seen in the leader's effectiveness in the area of blank, delegation, communication, whatever their goal is, minus three, much less effective, zero, no change, plus three, much more effective. That's your, that's your question, that's your scale, and now you can actually measure how much change has actually taken place. So the next logical question is, what if the leadership development program doesn't aim to directly affect behavior? Uh, you may have a program that teaches values or that affects uh, internal beliefs or limiting mindsets. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it teaches behaviors that just aren't so visible, such as private practice behaviors like meditation before having a difficult meeting. Um, <clears throat> for these cases, uh, I would reference the work of, of our friend Alan Mulally, who was former CEO of Boeing during the 9-11 attacks, and the CEO of Ford, who brought them from the brink of bankruptcy to profitability by raising the stock value 1,800% in a short time. Uh, and he says, leaders must act with honesty. They must live with honesty, which he defines as alignment between a leader's values, their beliefs, and their behaviors. But he cautions that in an organization and in any, any interpersonal relationship, the only one that is visible is behaviors. 
You don't see values. You don't see beliefs. You see how they're manifested in behaviors. So in your organization, that's what you have to measure. So if you're running a program that doesn't directly target visible behaviors, such as affecting mindsets, what you can do is deconstruct the desired leadership outcome of the new mindsets and attempt to measure those. So for example, let's say that you are, uh, let's say that you're facilitating a leadership retreat where executives learn to, uh, I don't know, ride horses as a team. It's a team building activity and they learn to ride horses. Okay. There's something internal and innate that happens when you, you touch animals or pet animals and it changes your biochemistry, blah, blah, blah. So you're running a program like this. It's not directly affecting behaviors, but it is, it is attempting to do something that should eventually affect the way that they behave at work. Um, you can define what new teamwork behaviors should be established as a result of your program and then ask the team in 12 months what changes they've seen in the other people in their team's ability to exhibit those behaviors. Again, this is what we do. So don't go at it alone. Drop me an email and we can help you or the organization implement these wonderfully simple tools to measure the effectiveness of your program and demonstrate ROI from it. Okay. Next question. This comes from Gopal in India. Gopal writes, corporate leaders are struggling and worried about retaining talented team members. Any tips and ideas we can provide will be useful and valuable to them. Good corporate leaders are struggling and worried about retaining talented team members. What ideas or tips can we provide that would be useful and valuable to them? This is absolutely true. The war for talent is on and retaining the best employees is critical for long-term success, especially in businesses where, especially in businesses that tend to hire coaches, which is where people are the production units. Okay, the market is rife with examples of this, especially in the tech world right now. Uh, but there are some interesting things companies are doing to retain great talent and providing coaching is a pretty big one. Right. In the past, we think of coaching as, as uh, fixing fatal problems. Coaches were brought in to turn the jerk into a saint or to turn the steamroller into something, well, <laughs> something more constructive. Pun intended. Sorry for the dad jokes. That's just, it's what I do. Um, overall, coaching was kind of a last resort before firing. And that's why you still hear coaches using the term coaching intervention and why you'll hear me consistently rally against the very term because it suggests that we are there to fix, fix uh, poor performers rather than to fortify the best from the best. So with that, we see, we see numerous examples um, in the U.S. where coaches are excuse me, where companies are employing coaches to upskill their top talent. And I would say Europe is really leading the way as we're seeing large organizations institute policies, right, down to the policy level um, to institute coaching as an employment benefit. Uh, and they're, in doing so, they're driving coaching further down into their talent pool to ensure that they are primed by the time their high potentials are at the top of their field. So, you know, the thing, the thing about this is that when you tell a leader or when an organization tells a leader, you're important and that's why you have a coach. 
Ooh, that sends a very particular message. When the CEO has a coach and the senior directors also have a coach, it's another very powerful message. But when there's just one or two people with a coach and these one or two people happen to have some pretty visible derailing behaviors, that sends an entirely different message. So choose your messages well. Make coaching into a retention mechanism to reinforce the message that the best are the ones who have coaches because they are worth investing in. So this is one retention mechanism. And I think another one worth talking about is professional development. Um, and I think this, this goes back to the, the age old and infamous Richard Branson quote to train people well enough that they can leave and treat them well enough that they don't want to. From personal experience, I can point out companies that do a great job marrying uh, executive coaching with functional training. And together, they use this to create a very effective talent pipeline with exceptional retention. So I'll call to an example, one tech firm that has a platform that undoubtedly everyone here is using. Everyone here who's listening to this right now is using it. Because if you have any interest in this field, you're almost guaranteed on it. What they do is they provide um, one of their global teams with three levels of training. Um, the first is classroom learning on functional development. So this is raw functional training, skill, hard skills training to get everyone performing on the same page. Once you move up to level two, you continue your classroom training and you get a coach to support your implementation on the job. So they're, they're pumping you full of knowledge. Once you move to level two, they're not just uh, giving you that classroom learning. They're making sure that you're getting coached to apply this um, on the job. Uh, this is a great application of the 70-20-10 model that we also mirror in our coach training. Um, once the elite graduate into level three, they are sent to our coach training program. And they're issued the old Jack Welch directive that uh, if you're a leader, you have a coach and you are a coach. I love that. If you're a leader, you are a coach, you have a coach and you are a coach. Um, so they're sent through a, a custom tailored version of our training program where they work hands-on with a stakeholder center coaching master coach to get certified, but with a little bit of a twist. Um, on the final days, they bring in two other members from level two that they're going to be coaching. And we work with them on the final days of certification to get them all the way through phase one. It's like a speed run through phase one of stakeholder center coaching. And then we mentor them for the next six to 12 months as they coach others in their team. Okay. So they are learning how to coach. First, they are learning the hard skills. Then they're getting coached on the hard skills. And then when they reach level three, they get hard skills in coach training that gets pumped back to level two. So they have this very nice pipeline where they're using co marrying coaching and professional development as a retention tool. And their team is, is phenomenal, both uh, as leaders and as functional performers. We've been doing this with them since maybe 2016 or so with impressive results. Uh, and of course, their whole goal was to create a coaching culture. You know, my two answers were both around coaching, but you know, that's, that's what I do. And you knew that before asking the question. So now we can ask ourselves, what do we do with this information? How do we make this actionable? Um, 
and let's 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 take this by you know depending on who you are so if you are an organization who understands the competitive value of coaching i would say consider cooking this into your internal training systems uh, those at the highest level of your training should be taught a structured coaching methodology and be paired with one or two other high potentials to be coached right so they're getting functional exposure by a higher level senior performer. They're also getting leadership skills, softer skills being uh, measurably improved at the same time. So this will not only sharpen the, um, the senior leaders' coaching abilities, but it will also provide internal coaching for your leaders of the future. And it reinforces the importance of coaching to the key people in your organization. So that's what you can do if you're an organization. Uh, but let's say that you are a leader. <clears throat> if you're a leader being coached in a structured coaching methodology like stakeholder-centered coaching, uh, consider, consider learning it for yourself. I mean, you can learn this in real time with your coach. You don't need to be certified to apply the, the, the principles of this or the process. So consider learning it yourself consider sharing that skill with a couple individuals in your own leadership pipeline. You know, of course, this is great benefit for both of you. Um, and you can provide visibility on your efforts and your outcomes with the managers to create internal visibility for yourself. Uh, I was working with a client just this week where the, the president, we're working at the N minus one level. Um, the president came along and said, I, you know, I keep hearing this. I keep seeing it. I want to be more involved in this. And so I told the HR sponsor, hey, let's meet up every month. Let's meet up for 30 minutes, 15 minutes. I'll tell you what I'm seeing. Of course, there's, there's no breach in confidentiality in what we're discussing. I'll tell you what you're, I'm seeing. You tell me what you're seeing. And then you can write a report and send it to the president. Oh, boy, this is great. It gets everybody involved and creates great, deep symbiosis for everyone. We're going to benefit by having our name in the emails going to the president. I'm going to benefit by building great rapport with the HR sponsor. <clears throat> the leaders are going to benefit by having their efforts relayed to the president and the coaches of the leaders are going to benefit by being the people enacting those changes. It's a complete no brainer. So if you're a leader and you're doing this internally, write that report once a month, send it to your superiors and say, Hey, just so you know, here's what I'm doing above and beyond my, my role. So this, this is a great way to enhance your leadership brand with key decision makers about the trajectory of your career. Okay, so we talked organization, we talked leader, uh, now let's talk coach. So I would say finally, if you are a stakeholder-centered coach and you are, uh, you are working with a client or organization who wants to improve the retention of their top talent, consider bolting on the idea of uh, transferability transferability into the engagement. If you're working with them for 12 months, aim to ritualize stakeholder-centered coaching processes by month six and spend the final months focusing on leader as coach, where the leader themselves slowly takes on a coaching role with key people in their team. And I'll unpack that because that's, that's quite a bit to throw down on the table and move on from. If I'm coaching a leader on delegation, just for an easy pick, uh, and that's all they're focused on. They're highly ambitious. I would say, hey, for six months, we are, gonna, we are going to institute 
these processes. You're going to be so good at them that you don't need me to remind you. You're just going to be on the ball doing it. If we hit that mark by month six and have positive growth in that area, we'll add a new growth area on top of it, which is leader as coach. So after six months, bring in a key person from their team and coach the leader on coaching their coachee, whoever that is, the key person in their team. So this, again, makes you very stakeholder-centered coach, makes you very stakeholder-centered, and it helps the leader start to become a coach themselves. You do not have to be certified to use the process of telling people what you're going to work on, getting suggestions, sharing an action plan, and measuring the results. You need to be certified to use any of the tools or trademarks or, or even any of our proprietary tools to do that, but you don't have to have them to develop. Okay, I'm going to add one more as a bonus. Um, if you are an employee who has been identified as a high potential leader, or you want to show your willingness simply to grow and develop within the organization, speak to your manager about getting coached. In the worst case, they say no, and you've still shown your eagerness to improve. And in the best case, you're going to receive one of the most powerful support systems of your career. Next question. Various companies and organizations are now developing their own behavioral competency stacks. How would stakeholder-centered coaching align with these? It may mean the SCC system having the ability to tweak some of the parameters on which it is done. Okay, good. And this question comes from Shantanu in India. Thanks for the question, Shantanu. Um, I'd say, uh, looking at the question, let's first talk about the parameters of stakeholder-centered coaching um, and then how the methodology natively connects to any behavioral competency stack because remember stakeholder center coaching is procedural by nature which means it is uh, agnostic to the behavioral inputs just that they are behavioral that's the, the the primary inclusion criteria they're behavioral and they're visible and i suppose stakeholder center coaching has just two parameters that are non-negotiable number one you will involve stakeholders uh, and number two, you will measure results. Everything else is variable. So there's no tweaking that needs to be done. Of course, there are nuances um, and suggestions, you know, such as the characteristics required to be an effective leader and uh, a good coaching client or uh, the behavioral coaching skills employed and so on. But you see that there's a near infinite amount of flexibility in the system, despite its appearance of rigidity. It's, it's, it, it looks very rigid because the aspects that are fixed are non-negotiable, um, but there's far more that's flexible than isn't. So, uh, you know, how does this connect to behavioral competency stacks? And, and what is this word I've used natively? What I mean is that stakeholder-centered coaching doesn't aim to affect any one behavior or type of behavior. Right? It doesn't give suggestions for how to get better. It simply gives prescriptions for how to find out how to get better or the most effective way to find out how to be better. So this isn't a, a crash course in, in effective communication. And now as a stakeholder center coach, you're an expert on communication. No, it says it makes the, the assertion that the answers to your behavioral bottlenecks 
are already in existence within your leadership ecosystem. So what stakeholder-centered coaching does is, hey, I will build a bridge between the knowledge that's already existing and you, your job then is to turn that back around and apply it. So you can just as easily work on uh, executive decision-making as you can on being a better parent or spouse or neighbor. As long as you're focused on behaviors and how they affect stakeholders, you're good to go. So I use the word native, kind of the way that a, a tech application natively connects to another. Um, there's no special procedures that you need to take for the end user to experience the full power of both apps. In other words, whatever the competency stack is, stakeholder-centered coaching is going to naturally plug in. Okay, uh, so when an organization has their own behavioral stack, and I hope that they do, your job as a stakeholder-centered coach is to help the leader identify which behaviors uh, should receive the focus of coaching, right? So they're going to have a long list of here's all of the values we espouse, here's all of the behaviors that we expect, etc. As a coach, your job is to say which one of these is the lowest common denominator. Where do we start working? Um, and in our training, we talk about really having no more than two behavioral goals. Uh, but I recommend, and indeed many of our top coaches will reinforce this as well, try and have just one goal, possibly adding another partway through the engagement. But we know that if you improve in one area, you're going to improve in many others as well. So how do you go about, um, how do you go about picking this goal? Well, as we talked earlier, feedback is a pretty good place to start. Uh, we employ behavioral interviews with key stakeholders, uh, perhaps a structured 360 assessment like the Global Leadership 360 assessment by Marshall Goldsmith. We'll use these tools to identify high value growth areas or high value behaviors to develop. Um, and this is generally, it's an area of critical performance for the business or an area where the leader needs to be more effective and just currently isn't doing as well as they should be, or even as well as they could be in many cases. We definitely like to work more in the could be than the should be. Once you know what that goal is uh, that the leader needs to be more effective in, identify the key people. Um, ask the question, who is affected by the leader's performance in that behavior? Tell them what you're going to do. Do it. Ask them how you did. And repeat that again and again. That's, that's the whole process. But it starts with the question, the, the, the feed forward question, what can I do in the next 30 days to improve in this particular area? Okay, so how do you pick the goal? Well, feedback is a great place to start. Uh, we employ behavioral interviews with key stakeholders, perhaps a structured 360 assessment like the Global Leadership 360 assessment by Marshall Goldsmith. We'll use this to identify high value areas to develop. Uh, this is generally an area of critical performance for the business um, or perhaps an area where the leader uh, needs to be effective and currently isn't as effective as they should be or as they could be. And of course, as coaches, I think we all enjoy working more with the could be than the should be, where one is more remedial and one is more aspirational. 
Okay, so once you know the goal and the key people affected by the leader's performance um, in that particular behavior, tell them what you're going to do, do it, and then ask them how you did, right? This starts with the question, what can I do in the next 30 days to demonstrate improved effectiveness in this area? Um, after, after collecting the suggestions, make an action plan and share that action plan with those same people. Tell them, here's what I'm going to be working on. Here's what I'm committed to. Here's the behaviors you can, you can look for. And then repeat this process monthly. Every three to six months, you can use an anonymous survey uh, that asks, what changes have you seen in my effectiveness in this particular area? Minus three to plus three. Minus three is much less effective. Plus three is much more effective. It's very simple. And you can repeat the system for the rest of your career. There's no, there's no expiration date on this process. And again, it's, it's agnostic to the inputs. And I think that's, that's the important piece of addressing the question. Um, of course, as a, as a disclaimer, I recommend working with a coach for at least the first year. Uh, this process is very much like riding a bike. You can definitely, or swimming is a gr another great example. You can do it. You can figure it out yourself. But if you're going to be applying this for the next 30, 20 or 30 years of your career, it's worth paying the money to, to get it down right the first time. Uh, as a rationale, I like to point to the $300 billion plus dollar diet and fitness industry in America, a country where we are continually growing in size. We are, we are expanding horizontally in, in ways not seen in human history. And yet, we know what to do. The value of the industry shows, shows that. We are buying the books. We are going to the programs. We are doing all the things. Uh, we are learning all the things, but we're just not doing things differently. Uh, the coach will help. A coach will help bridge that gap uh, of self-implementation um, much further than you could yourself. So I suggest if you are a coach, try identifying the organizations who prioritize behaviors by defining the required behaviors of leaders and work with them, right? This is the, the, the companies developing those behavioral stacks, as you mentioned. So help the leaders discover which behavior they have the most growth potential in who benefits from the realization of that potential, and then get down to work. Check in with the leader at least once a year after you complete the engagement to ensure that that success is sustained. And then check in with the leader at least once a year after you finish the engagement to ensure that uh, progress is still being made in your stead. So um, to summarize, Organizations who are making behavioral stacks or their behavioral competency stacks who are defining the expected behaviors, those are good companies to work for, work for and work with because these are companies who prioritize behavior. So if you find them, try to work with them and understand that stakeholder-centered coaching will natively connect to whatever their behavioral stack is as long as those behaviors are, as long as they are behaviors and not just values or beliefs. Next question, and this comes from one of our coaches, Gloria, in Singapore. She says, I am based in APAC, Asia Pacific. Compared to the US and Europe, Australia, etc., coaching is still in its infancy phase, though it's gradually picking up. Yes, and we're very happy to see that taking place and be a part of it. She says, I believe in stakeholder-centered coaching, 
as managing stakeholders and working with stakeholders is such an important element of success. However, the culture is more geared towards mentoring rather than coaching. And I tend to face resistance from potential clients on this. Yes, we do see that in many Asian cultures, uh, as well as in the Middle East, where the um, senior executive is seen as the expert and their, their mission is to hand information downward versus saying, let's collaborate to find the information already existing in your ecosystem. So the question is often why coaching and not just mentoring? I see coaching as such a value add and being transformational to the culture and the people. So if you can shed some light on this, it would be very useful to enable coaches to break through the resistance in this space. As I understand it, it seems that the question is primarily asking about making the case for coaching versus mentoring versus both. And specifically, the case of coaching with stakeholder-centered coaching versus mentoring versus stakeholder-centered coaching and mentoring. Um, and I think it's important to make a, a strong distinction here before moving forward. If you are thinking to hire a stakeholder-centered coach, you are not just getting the stakeholder-centered coaching process, you're getting the stakeholder-centered coaching process plus that coach's individual subject matter expertise, experience, education, and, and so on. If you wanna do stakeholder-centered coaching and you happen to be, let's say, a, a, an organizational psychologist, you might want to hire a coach who has a similar experience or education. You'll wind up speaking a similar language right out of the gates. Um, they'll understand your POV a bit easier. They'll understand your point of view easier. Uh, they may even have experienced personally some of the pressures that you're under. You know, if you want someone with a consulting background or someone who can help you with public speaking or perhaps a coach with um, psychotherapy training who can straddle the services of coaching and psychotherapy at once, um, pick the right coach with that background. So with that in mind, that you're not just getting a process, you're getting access to that coach's subject matter expertise, I would contend that by and far, mentoring is cooked into the coaching regardless of which coach you work with. Um, therefore, I'll address the question more as why bolt on stakeholder-centered coaching to mentoring without further discussion, why stakeholder-centered coaching instead of mentoring? I don't think that they're, you know, we have the process, but I think that implementing the process also requires some degree of, of mentoring if you're working with a coach. If you're working inside and someone is internally coaching you with stakeholder-centered coaching, you might just get the process. I think this really comes down to the aim of mentoring. Um, and we talked a little bit about this earlier with how to measure program effectiveness when your program does not intend to directly affect behaviors. Um, and the answer is to intellectually go a few steps further. Ask what is the desired outcome of mentoring? If the outcome is, I, I want this person to have a nice, warm, fuzzy relationship, great. Your measures are highly subjective and unique to each engagement. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in fact, a lot of people, at least in my, my kind of uh, my exposure to the mentoring research as it overlaps with coaching, is that by and large, people who get mentored self-report great changes as a result. However, 
We also said leaders must live with honesty, where honesty is the alignment between your values, your behaviors, and your beliefs. But the only ones we can see are behaviors. So if mentoring is an attempt to modify or reinforce values, to enhance one's self-belief or certain beliefs about their contributions to the company, then by definition, some observable ch behavioral change must take place for it to be visible. And that's where stakeholder-centered coaching shines. So I have seen um, organizations use mentoring to prime high potentials for higher leadership positions down the line. As an organization, your eyes should be on the tangible outcomes from those mentoring conversations, namely the behavioral changes that come as a result of the mentoring. Stakeholder-centered coaching in this case refines the focus of those behaviors and provides accountability for them to ensure that it happens, to ensure that um, they are not just taking place, but they're also seen. So let me, let me say it this way. Stakeholder-centered coaching is undisputed as the shortest path between the behaviors of today and the behaviors of tomorrow. No question about it. The research is very clear about this. You do not think your way into new behaviors. You behave your way into new thinking. So where stakeholder-centered coaching ensures compliance of the correct behaviors mentoring reinforces the internal dialogue about those behaviors. And it can help shorten the internalized learning curve about why those behaviors should remain sticky. Now, uh, since it is a coach who is asking the question, I'm going to suppose that this conversation um, is generally taking place before being contracted as a coach. And so I will address how you have this conversation or how I have this conversation with a potential client. When they ask me, why not just do mentoring? I'll affirm the curiosity and ask them to explain it to me. Hey, what about, uh, what about mentoring do you see as potentially effective? Typically, the answer is the relationship, the transfer of perspective, the exposure to a, a senior person in the organization, uh, sharing the experience, uh, the safety of having a guide, etc. And I'll say, mm hmm. And how how do you know when you've achieved those? And and by the way, since the leader's spending a lot of their time on this, uh, how will others know when it was achieved? And by asking this visibility question, it forces them to think not just about the individual, but how the transformation the individual goes through interacts with the environment around the individual. More often than not, they will either point to a behavioral change that they want to see take place, or they just haven't thought that far. In either case, I can ask, hey, how measurable should the outcome of mentoring be? How, how measurable should those new behaviors be? How visible should they be? How much do you want to know that it's occurred or not occurred? No one says, yeah, I don't think we really need to know. No one says, I don't think it should be measurable. And this is where I present stakeholder-centered coaching as a simple method for providing accountability for the behavior and measurement change. I assure them that stakeholder-centered coaching can be done concurrently with the mentoring and that stakeholder-centered coaching will simply, uh, will simply provide accountability for action as a result of the mentoring. And you know what? If, if the 
if the mental hurdle that the prospective client is, is trying to climb over is that mentoring is the only thing that's necessary, you don't even need to present stakeholder-centered coaching as a coaching process. It can simply be, hey, you're going to do mentoring. I agree with you on that. You can say, hey, you're going to do mentoring. It's a great idea. You've said that the behaviors should be visible and that the leader should be accountable to them and that they should be measurable so that you are able to track the impact of this initiative. Here's how we can do that. When the mentor and the leader meet together, they're going to pick something to work on. They're going to ask for suggestions, make an action plan, share it, follow up regularly for feed forward and measure the results. That's it. So tell me more about the mentoring. And now the conversation can be more focused on what they want. By the way, if you are a mentor and want to make your services more measurable, more concrete, and justify the impact that you are having, the tangible impact, consider stakeholder-centered coaching or consider adopting some of the tools that we employ to measure that impact for yourself. In summary, mentoring is a great way to encourage leaders to improve and to shorten the learning curve for deeper professional success. However, it is the behaviors that drive success, not the beliefs about them, not the internal dialogue about them, and not how much you, you ascribe to a set of values. It's the behaviors. So if mentoring is a consideration, allow it to work inside out and let stakeholder-centered coaching work outside in. Next question comes from Amit in India. He asks, is leadership language changing these days? And is the impact of 360 assessments still valuable as far as stakeholder center coaching is concerned? Leadership language is constantly in motion. The best companies in the world know that uh, uncovering the, the tiniest edge in leadership competitiveness can provide a significant amount of competitive advantage with huge ROI on R&D into the concepts and theories being investigated. So um, I would say uh, it is constantly in motion. And as a result, coaches should do their best to stay one step ahead. Uh, my hope is that a significant contribution our 5,000 strong coaching network can contribute to is research and data to both expand the global focus of leadership, as well as improve the lives of the leaders and those who follow them. As for the severity of 360 assessments still holding value, absolutely, uh, perhaps even more so now than ever before. Remember, uh, 360s are simply a, a feedback tool to collect input from the people around the leader. This was important at the inception of management theory, and it continues to grow in focus as tools continue to develop uh, efficiency of time and costs. So I don't suppose that this will decrease anytime soon. Um, as it relates to stakeholder center coaching, um, I would say an increasingly large focus is being placed on feed forward. Why is that? It's because successful leaders want to be able to influence the future. They want to be in control of their destiny. And generally speaking, they have a, an unflappable sense of optimism about their ability to do so. Feedback focuses on a past you can't change, where feed forward focuses on a future that you can. So since you're writing for my insights, um, I will share with you how I recommend pairing 360s with feed forward. 
Um, a 360 or any feedback tool in general is a great way to create a benchmark for coaching. Um, it's going to give you a full view of the leader's strengths and areas to develop, the environments that bring out the best and worst in them, and it will collect general suggestions for the leader to be more effective. Um, I recommend using this information to identify a clear target of a high value area for development. Um, my litmus test for this is what I think of as the coach's triple bottom line. And that is a behavior or area that is important to the leader, important to the stakeholders, and important to the, the business or the organization. When you have this degree of alignment of the interests for the people you serve, you can make a compelling case for change, whether that's a psychological case, uh, an emotional case, or a business case. The case can be compelling. If you recall a meet, in our coach training program, I think it was you and I that was in the same breakout room together to learn that process of crafting the business case for change. Um, and this is exactly what it's pointed at. Once you know the area, identify the people who have line of sight on that behavior <clears throat> um, and a vested interest in the change. This is generally six to 12 people that we call stakeholders. It's your direct reports, a few peers, and a manager or two. Thank everyone for providing input. Tell them what you learned, which is, you know, I'm seen as effective in a couple of these areas. And I also have a few areas that I want to develop. And that's these ones. Tell them your goal. Ask for everyone's input on how to get better. And then stop. From here on out, no more feedback, with the exception of a six and 12 month mini survey. From here on out, it's feed forward the rest of the way. Every month, go back to those stakeholders and say, how do I improve in this area? Or how do I demonstrate improvement in this area in the next 30 days? What would you notice as being different if I were more effective in this area? There's no magic to how you ask, but it needs to be focused on the future and it needs to be focused on visible behaviors. And you know, this is going to give you a future that you are in control of changing. So I'm going to use that input to build an action plan and communicate that to the stakeholders to create visibility of the changes they should expect to see and that I'm committing to. Every quarter or every half year, deploy a mini survey. And that's going to ask a few questions, the most important of which is, what changes have you seen in my effectiveness in this particular area? By using this approach, you can completely escape the negative feelings of feedback while still keeping the leader in the driver's seat of their destiny. So I would say 360s are not just important in the past, but they will continue to be important as they become more accessible through time efficiency and cost efficiency. Uh, and as far as stakeholder-centered coaching goes, we use a little bit of feedback and a whole lot of feed forward. As we reach the end, of an incredible season one journey. We couldn't be more grateful for the amazing guests who made this possible. It's been an enlightening and an inspiring ride and we owe it all to you. As we wrap up this season, it's not goodbye. It's a see you later. We're excited to announce that we're already gearing up for an even more exciting and insightful season two. If you have questions you'd like to ask, 
If there's a coach you'd like to hear interviewed, drop us an email at podcast at mgscc.net. If you're interested in learning more about our training program, go to mgscc.net forward slash sample course to get instant access to our course, Foundations of Stakeholder-Centered Coaching, where you can learn the founding principles of our coaching methodology at no cost to you. Season two is just around the corner. More compelling stories, more brilliant minds, and more profound discussions await. Subscribe to our podcast, hit that notification bell, and join us on this exciting journey. This show was produced by Stakeholder-Centered Coaching, where we believe everyone deserves a stakeholder-centered leader. Until next time, keep exploring, keep growing, and keep making a positive impact on the world. Thank you for joining us on Conversations with Coaches.